Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment on the Sullivan Program. My good friend, Caregiver Dave, Miss Annie Dave, how are you? What's up, man? I'm awesome. Waiting for my movie to come out. My, my book's already out. We're just having a great time riding the wave. And my guest today, Ed Hagem, is just one of the most amazing stories. I just want him to tell you, tell his story. And I was talking about if the pursuit of happiness can have a movie about a financial guy that's moved up the financial ladder, this guy's rag to riches story is amazing. <clears throat> kidnapping from kidnapping to a Harvard business school grad to wow. you know, successful in so many ways. Ed Hagem, Ed, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's, a, it's a great thing to be on your show. Absolutely. So let's talk about this story. Let's just start at the beginning. And I know Dave will ask questions, but the best way to do it is you were kidnapped and it, changed your life right at a very ripe old age, right? Right. At age three, mom and dad got divorced. And uh, there's a, that's a long story. Dad, dad uh, was very successful in the 20s, lost everything between 29 and 33. It marked him for life. And as he tells the story, 1933, sitting in New York, having lost his airplane, his buildings, his money, and his mother died, he decided that between committing suicide and driving to California, Lucky for me, he decided to drive to California or I wouldn't be here now. Anyway, uh, he married, he stopped at a cousin's house. He married, after two weeks, he married the fifth of a six child family and drove off to California after two weeks of being with this family. Uh, she, she was a, a very young woman. She was only 18 when they got married. He was 33 wow. and uh, difficult character, having lived a very difficult life. He had still some of the Middle Eastern mentality of like the Hajj, uh, you know, like uh, Abraham and the Hajj. He had very definite habits and you know, women are not supposed to work and so on. So anyway, so in 1936, I was born three years after marriage. And three years later, my mother couldn't take it anymore. And she got divorced. She got custody, went back to St. Louis from Los Angeles. My father got visiting rights on Sunday and five dollars a week in alimony and child support. And kind of the first Sunday, he drove the 1800 miles from Los Angeles, St. Louis, picked me up. And basically, instead of taking me to the park or to a movie, got back on Highway 66, that's on the front cover of the book, and drove me back to Los Angeles, told my mother not to look for us, and told me a couple times later, he said, basically, she died. And I live with the fact that she died for a very long time, actually 57 years. That's how it all started. And, uh, you know, at age three, I obviously didn't recognize what that all meant. But this started a 15-year period of hotels and motels until my father got drafted to the Second World War, then five, five Catholic foster homes, then a trip back to New York. My father got out of the service, spent the summer of 46 in the YMCA on 34th Street, then a hotel room in Coney Island, and dad went back to sea, and I ended up with two orphanages until I graduated high school. That's a thumbnail experience. The, the foster homes were the first one was Dickinsonian. They were, they were, uh, you know, they were interested only in the money. They were cold and 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 you know, and, and aggressive and and really you know, abusive in many respects. The, the, the homes kept getting better, and by the last one, which was only six months, they're not be warm and caring. So I got the full range of of experiences. Uh, going from once I was in five Catholic schools as well. I think that's one of the greatest trainings of all time. Not only did the nuns teach me a great deal. But going from one schoolyard to the other, you learn an awful lot. And I learned a lot by having to adjust to a different environment on a regular basis. That's a thumbnail of it. I can spend some time on the detail. But and just throw in the fact that I didn't weigh 
And at age at age eleven, I weighed sixty six pounds, and I was four feet six. So it wasn't wasn't exactly a kid that could get along too well in the schoolyard. I, I learned how to how to get to, how to adapt. All right, Dave. Wow. A question for you, Dave. Go ahead. So when well, did when did you realize that you had a story and that you were going to write about it? Well, you know, when I was eighteen years old and I was graduating from high school, I, I was very much embarrassed. I didn't want any benefit from my background, so. When I tell young people today, and it's a little different than it is now because, you know, poor kids or kids from orphanages didn't go to private colleges. So when I left Yonkers, Roosevelt High School in Yonkers, went to the University of Rochester, I decided to bury my background. My father was a merchant marine. He was at sea. We lived in a post office box in San Francisco. My mother died when I was three. End of story. So what some people say, a little bit of denial doesn't hurt. And I denied it. So I didn't have to explain it to everybody. I didn't get any you know, benefit. I didn't want, I didn't want, I was ashamed of it. I didn't want anybody to give me any special privileges for my background. And I buried it until the early, my early seventies. My wife knew most of it. I told her before we got married, my kids knew about half of it. And I basically lived my life you know, of this particular situation. My early seventies, my, my wife and my children ganged up on me along with the university of Rochester, where I was the chairman. So we got to know more about your background. So I, I actually couldn't write my childhood. My daughter, who is a writer and is a, is a uh, curator at TED Talks, wrote the first draft of my background. We had, I kept every letter my father had written me, and he had kept every letter that I wrote him. So I had all that, that documentation. You had to separate the, you know, from facts from what I remembered. You had to basically get that thought you wanted to communicate. Once you got that thought down on paper, was the reader going to get that thought? Anyway, my daughter wrote my first draft of my background. I couldn't actually tell the story I just told you because I would well up. All those background things would come back. Even at my age, I really couldn't handle it because I buried it. It was it was buried away, and I thought I would never tell it. So anyway, so I wrote the first book, and I sent the galleys out, and I said these 15 people came back, and half of them said, you know, you've got it. There's a wider audience for this. Every freshman in college, every senior in high school ought to read this because it proves that anything is possible in America. And education is, is at least the solution to almost everything, if not everything. It also had lessons in it, like in many respects, I look back on my background and I learned from writing the book that, you know, I, I, just, I was never a victim. And I tell people, don't be a victim. Right. No matter what you do, whether it's right or wrong, and you end up having a bad situation, you know, go forward. Take that energy of being a victim and use it on what's next. I mean, I use the example of Lehman Brothers. I spent seven years there and I'm immodest in saying I did a great job on two very difficult divisions. The second one, I raised almost $8 billion in two and a half years. And I still got thrown out because I wouldn't agree with the, with the boss who was pushing out the chairman. I wouldn't push the chairman out. So he pushed me out. But instead of using that energy to fight him, which I could have, I could have gone to the press. I was the chairman of seven mutual funds. I could have, you know, like outside boards. I went on to the next step and I found my dream job. So I always tell people, Try not to be a victim, whether, you, whether it's your fault or not. Go on to the next thing, because using energy on things that have passed is really a waste of time and energy. Exactly. But, so that's sort of a that's that's why I decided to print it. And I'm getting a terrific kick out of it. I mean, I'm, I, I've I lived my life on Wall Street under the mantra that to live happy is to live hidden. In fact, I used to tell people that publicity in the financial business is the next step before jail. So I stayed out of the press. I stayed. I was the chairman and I was a strategist and all that kind of stuff. And. The CNBC would call me and I'd always turn them down. Even when I sold the firm, they called me and I said, how about tomorrow morning? And they said, old news. So I, I sort of stayed out of the press and stayed out of television because I felt like that's a whole different world. Now I'm in it. I'm talking to wonderful people like you and I'm having a lot of fun with it. And, and it's absolutely helping people. I, I'm getting letters and I'm getting emails from people telling me that they, you know, they really like the book. It's good reading. One woman said it reads like fiction, but it's real life, which I thought was a great comment, you know. Uh, and I'm getting people associating with it. That's great. So, I, my life was like that. Here, my father was an orphan or some other damn thing like right. that. Wonderful. Yeah. Right. Good, Dave. I know you have another question. <clears throat> so any chance that this could turn into a movie? Well, you know, it, as I said, my leading man died. Uh, Sean Connery's gone, unfortunately. But uh, Tom Cruise, if he was interested, might be, you know, uh, it, it, I, I, they're, they're, I, I did when I signed the contract. I got a big contract for signing this. Skyhorse gave me $1,000 and they took 90% of the revenues. But I did keep 50% of the movie rights. So we'll have to see. It would seem to me that, you know, with a little bit of, and, you know, you have, you have a little poetic license. 
You know, I met my wife when she was, she followed me out to California. It's a great story, a long, wonderful story. She followed me out to California and she was a graduate school there and we dated and I got married. Now, if I'd have met her in a smoky bar in San Francisco and I saved her from a life of, you know, of, of, of you know, of, of uh, problems, you know, or saved her from a life of, of, of you know, difficult situation, that might have made a better story. So, you know, maybe the- maybe I, I, the, think, I think your story does, and I think if you said you're inspiring people, I think it does. So I, would, I think you're undervaluing yourself on that. And I think Dave would completely agree with me as well, because the fact of the matter is being from hotel to hotel, this is the kind of stuff that's on Netflix, right, Dave? This is the kind of stuff that's on Amazon, Dave, right? Yeah, yeah, and different yeah. things, because people want to see real, raw stuff and so maybe you don't think your story is this no no my you know, the, the first the, the first the, the first uh, you know uh, uh, foster home was abusive they were really abusive. the guy used to take a strap out to me all the time he mm. didn't want to spare the child and it was it was it wasn't wasn't quite cinderella but it's you know it's it the difficult. modern day annie it sounds wonderful no and I'm, i remember one of the foster homes i ran home from school because i was a small guy kids always beat me up because i was small but i always fought back and I remember this one woman, she said, the bully was outside in the front yard. And, and I got, if I got home, I was really a fast runner. In fact, I ran track in college. I got home and I was breathing hard. She says, what happened? I said, guys wanted to beat me if he's outside in the front yard. She says, you go out there. You go out there. And I remember sending him me back out there. And of course, I, I did one of those things. I ran about and ran into him, you know. And so I found out that if you hurt the other guy, even though you lose the battle, they leave you alone. So that was one of those lessons you learn. That isn't in the book, by the way. A lot of my that background I left out because it, I, you know, it was I, being in foster homes was enough, and you know, I, I, but I, I, I remember some things. Being a little guy it really was important too. Lucky I grew about six, seven inches during my sophomore and junior year in high school, and I played basketball. So I mean, it was a it was another great experience of, of being an athlete and and you know being a little guy being an athlete. Baseball yeah. they had to pitch to me because I wasn't such a big guy. So, it, so that you know, you're right. I, I I thought about the movie rights. I haven't really. I really want, I've been only working on the book for a year now, and I want to find out where it's going, and it's opened up fabulous avenues for me. I'm involved with 72 foster kids in Boston now, and with an organization that services those people. I'm involved at Northeastern University with, I'm training kids to, to handle, you know, the freshman year. And mm-hmm. it's, these kinds of things are pretty exciting to me, and, and I, you know, I don't know when, if, I don't know anything about the movie business. I didn't know anything about the publishing business, by the way, either. So I'm learning, you know, about this. I'm learning about talking to people, people like you. And, you know, I'm, I'm learning an awful lot about how to communicate. You know, I, I've gotten, you know, I've spo- I gave the, grad, the commencement speech at Brunswick School in Greenwich. Oh, I gave the commencement speech. Up lot, of, just, yeah. I, you know, that's, Look, that's a real Don't worry. They're going to come to you asking for the movie. You don't have to go to them. Exactly. That's what's going to happen, Dave. That's a great point. So Dave has, is a caregiver and he has the final question for you, Dave. Yeah, so I've been a caregiver for the last 25 years when uh, it's about half of my marriage, been married almost 50 years. And it, my wife had a headache, headache of her life wouldn't go away, it turned into a stroke, she lost her speech, paralyzed on one side. And uh, overnight, I'm a caregiver. And so, you know, the grief period, the next couple of years, figuring out how do we handle this, a lot of anger and uh, uh, denial, you name it. And so she reinvented herself finally. And our love was rekindled. And now I became Dave, the caregiver's caregiver. I speak all over the country. I've been on 53 TV uh, interviews. And uh, I help caregivers stay alive because 30% of them die before their loved ones do with my website, caregiverdave.com. So I try to get the caregivers before they become caregivers because everyone's going to eventually become one or need one. And so have you, uh, at your ripe age of 80, I'm sure caregiving has touched your life somehow. Well, you know, to me, that's that you're doing exactly what to for caregiving, what I'm trying to do for freshmen and, and, and sophomore freshmen in college and freshmen seniors in high school to get them through that difficult period. Because what you're saying is if I can train you to be a caregiver, get you through that early stages, the grief and the anger. This, for example, foster kids, I tell them I had anger. I don't kid. I had because when you're a foster child or an orphan, you keep saying to yourself, why me? You spend your whole life saying that. You take that anger and, and place it outside, then you're dead. If you place it inside and use energy to go forward, you're okay. Same thing, with, I suspect, with caregiving. Well, we have caregiving. We have, we have obviously, we, Barbara and I, you know, right now at 85, I have, I, every morning I have a prayer list, which is so goddamn long, it's ridiculous. I have six people with Alzheimer's now. You know, I have at least a half a dozen women with breast cancer. 
that I communicate with as best I can. In many, many respects, this is just support. I just talked to somebody who's going blind this afternoon. I said, Emery, we're right behind you. The prayers are coming. You know, and, and so I'm not really a caregiver. I got eight grandchildren, so I had enough of those kinds of problems. You got one of each, you know, and uh, I have three children, of course. I'm married for 56 years, and but I have a, a very healthy wife and a wonderful, wonderful relationship. But I always say, tell people I love her more than yesterday and less than tomorrow because she's a very special lady. That's I remember great. that song. But oh, the caregiving oh. thing is what you're doing is you're taking a different chunk of life. A and that business going from a regular person to a caregiver, you go through a time warp. Just like when people leave high school, go to college, something happens. And you, the way you handle that, kids don't flunk out of college academically. Usually. Right. They flunk out socially. They get behind in, their, in the process and they get exactly. down on themselves and then they're out. If you can get them over that, then you, and that's where I'm spending my, trying to spend as much of my time as possible. Also, people lose their job or get divorced. That, that sort of, that particular, you know, junk, yes. junk to, to the position, try to get them into a different mentality. I mean, I got thrown out of Lehman Brothers. I mean, I still had kids in private school. I had you know, a whole bunch of stuff, but I didn't, I said, all right, what's next? And then the next thing happened was absolutely fabulous. I mean, I gave up my fancy dining room for, for a, a, a conference room with two hot plates I gave up my office, which overlooked the whole goddamn harbor for, for an office which looked at a brick wall. But I found my, my dream job, which was to run a company. And I had, I had a ball doing it for almost 20 years. So we had, you know, we really were very successful. But again, I tell people, you know, I was successful. But during that period of time that I grew the company 20 times, the market went up 10 times. So one of my pitches is look at the world, try to get the wind at your back. Find, you read all the biographies you want to read, you'll find out those people most of the successful people got some long period of their life where they had the wind at their back. And so these, these are the kinds of concepts that yes, I'm coming up with. But the movie sounds great. If you could help me, I would be You're interested. You're doing pretty in, good. I mean, you know, at 80, um, not many 85. 85. Excuse me. You look like you're 60 and you talk like you're 60. Yeah, exactly. He's sharp as a tack. And yeah. so you're, you're, you know, one of the one in a thousand. So just uh, thank your lucky stars and thank God. Oh, uh, since you're uh, leaving, since you got kicked, I am? since you I got kicked out of, since, I'm sorry, since you got kicked out of Lehman Brothers, I want to ask you, what's your opinion on cryptos? Well, I've, I've been negative on crypto from the beginning. My contention is that no. By the way, Bitcoin's not going to go to zero. No, but in every market cycle, you get a market cycle, you get a, a, a speculation of some kind, you know, the e-companies in, in 99, go back, I go back to the oils and, you know, in, in the, the conglomerates in the 60s, there's always some wild speculation that occurs in every market cycle and they take it down during the decline. I'll give you a simple example which you all relate to. In 1999, early 2000, Amazon, which is a great company, sold at $100 a share. By the time that bear market was over, it sold at 10, or actually went from 113 to seven. Now, I got corrected the other day when I used those numbers. But mm -hmm. so Amazon was the, the sort of the poster child. And same thing with General Electric and Cisco. Those though didn't, didn't come back. So in this case, the, the, the crypto, the public got into it, everybody got into it, and they're gonna have to get back out again. But I think Bitcoin's here for a long time because of the fact, but it could be 10,000 easily by the time this is over. Uh, because people like Salva, El Salvador and other places where the currency is actually weaker than Bitcoin. You know, they're really, they, you know, if you're, a, I always kid about this, but the, you know, Vail, Colorado is just full of, of Mexican, uh, Mexicans. And the reason is that no Mexican has ever lost money by taking pesos and buying land or buying an apartment in Vail because the peso's gone down. And Argentinians, Argentinians the same way. So Bitcoin has that, that, uh, has that basically that that mentality, but the whole other crypto, Luna, which just went mm. out of business, lost fifty billion dollars. Mm. It was bigger than the Lehman Brothers disaster, but of course, it's fourteen years later, and fifty billion is not look as much. At, as look, at, look at so look at Bitcoin. Something. All right, best place we can find info on you. Purchase your book. Where can we go at? Pardon? Where can we go to buy your book? What's the best place? Oh, please do that. I appreciate. it. More importantly, if you do read it, and only if you like it. Go to my web, go to go to Amazon, give us a little bit of a brief, brief review and a rating. That's very important. All right. What's your website? Where is it on? It's available on Amazon, but you have a website? You can go to my website, but on Amazon, you have to go and give me a review. Right. Okay. 205 stars, almost 205 stars. All right. Reviews. So where can we direct us to learn more about the book? Where can we go? But my website or Amazon, both places. What Amazon is your website? Is so people know. 
Yeah, Amazon does a pretty good job. Uh, oh, and so tell people where, you're, where, where is your website for people to oh, It's easy. It's the, I'm the only Hadrum in the world besides my kids. It's Ed Hadrum, www.edhadrum at gmail at, uh, at www.edhadrum.com. All right, fantastic. We appreciate you, Ed. Dave, what an amazing guest, and I appreciate both of you. Thank you. All right, that was the Caregiver Dave Celebrity segment, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Doc, Rural Doc Allen's podcast. I'm excited to welcome the program. Rural Doc Allen Lindemann, how are you, sir? Great, and you? I'm doing fantastic, and our topic for today's podcast is going to be pit pain. What is pit pain? It's short for pitocin, um, and it's what is a slang that doctors and nurses use. It has a particular kind of contraction, which is painful, but ineffective. Um, in other words, it spikes up far and then down again. And like I said, it's painful, but it doesn't do any good. A normal contraction is like a bell-shaped curve. So it's the area under the, under the um, line that does the uh, work for the um, labor. Okay, I got it. Okay, so how do we kind of decrease pit pain? What, what are some strategies? Well, you know, my favorite is um, just to avoid it completely. I like mesoprostol, which is a prostaglandin. 25 micrograms in the um, uh, vagina, and um, that's usually will produce a delivery in about 12 hours. So, and pitocin usually is just uh, measured or it, it's given or pro produced from five centimeters to complete. Uh, so that's where the pain comes from because you're giving a medication or a substance, a hormone that should be given only from five to um, complete. Oh, wow. Okay. So based on what you're saying about this, uh, are a lot of people trying to decrease pit pain altogether? Other doctors or not? Pitocin is very, very popular. And the reason it's popular is because it's rescindable. In other words, if you stop the IV pitocin, it's probably gone within three or four minutes. So that's why um, doctors and nurses like it. Got it. Got it. Okay. And so what is the uh, ultimate uh, situation is that you've figured out ways to decrease pit pain or uh, decrease or altogether. I was wondering about other doctors and then especially for soon to be moms to make sure that they don't have pit pain. What should they tell their doctor? Well, there's many reasons you have unbearable pain. I just went through uh, romper and I read a bunch of stories that lady has had some actually said that the pain pit pain isn't as bad as real labor some said it was as bad as real labor and some said it was much worse than uh, natural labor so what's your recommendation well you know what I did I used mesoprostol which is cytotech that was designed as a um, um, medication to um, settle your stomach. Uh, and so it's an off-label use that probably makes um, many doctors worried because uh, we can get into a lot of trouble with off-label use. But I would have my patients come into the office in the morning about eight o'clock. We'd put them on the monitor and the charge was for an NST, so that's $125 versus $15,000 for the um, Pitocin in the hospital. So I would give them, I'd get a handle on their labor, what they were doing, and then make sure that there's no fetal distress, and then put in the uh, uh, mesoprostol. And... I'd watch them for four hours and send them home. And a lot of them would say, they'd call me about six o'clock and said, I'm coming in after I finish supper. So, and most of them delivered between 7 p.m. and 10 p.m. 
Okay. So is this your method a little different than a lot of other doctors or they all you're seeing based on the whole discussion about C-section versus natural birth? Um, yes. Many doctors wouldn't do what I'm doing, but I, I have always been out of the box um, thinking. Uh, the nice thing about the prostaglandin is that it gives you a natural prodrome. The prodrome is the first part of labor where you feel the backache and um, probably some uh, abdominal cramps. Okay. And so the best place to go for all this great information, especially and check out other podcasts is go to where? I would say uh, ruraldocallen.com. All right. Well, fantastic, Rural Doc. It was great information again, and I appreciate you. Thank you. All right. That was the Rural Doc Allen podcast. Take care, guys. We're back to Neil Haley's show, and we're, I'm really excited about our guest today, but I first want to welcome my special co-host, Dr. Cheryl White. Uh, under, uh, she's the author of Underground Angel. How are you, Dr. Cheryl? And I know you're excited about our guest today. I am excited. I'm glad to be here. And I can't wait to visit with Dr. Bentley. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Chuck Bentley. He's the CEO of Crown Financial, and he wrote a book called Economic Evidence for God. Uh, Dr. Bentley, thanks for stopping by. How are you? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Neil. And it's nice to meet you and you, Dr. White. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. So we'll just start out by kicking off the first question. Dr. Cheryl, go ahead. Yeah, first, thank you so much. And you can call me Cheryl. That's fine. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, why did you write this book? Your book, The um, Economic Evidence for God. That's just a fascinating topic. Well, first of all, I had a personal encounter with God through economics. Uh, in 1999, I uh, became a student of the Bible and began to realize that God's principles were radically different than the ones that I was living by. Mm -hmm. And although my finances were, were going fine, I really felt like I was in the wrong for doing things the way that I had been taught to do them with money. I, I really was on the vanity program, uh, trying to accumulate more of the world and do everything in a selfish manner. And I, I was challenged to apply God's word to my own uh, financial choices, which I did. And that led me not only to a better marriage, better financial outcomes, but also a deeper relationship with the Lord. And as I began to travel and teach these things to other people, I realized that those same principles that worked for me actually worked for nations. And so I wanted to write a book about it so people could begin to see that God is present in our daily financial transactions and in the national economic decisions that we make. So, so having that awakening, what, how did you change the way you looked at financial finances and stuff? Neil, I would say the first big change is I began to see myself as a steward of the resources that I had as opposed to an owner. If I'm the owner, then I have the ultimate control and decision over what happens to those resources. And I felt like the owner. I'd worked hard for them. I had, uh, you know, felt like they were a reward for my hard work. And uh, I felt like you score by how much of them accumulated. That had been my methodology for my whole life. When I realized that uh, I really didn't own anything, that God owns everything, and I temporarily manage his resources on his behalf, then I was able to lose that sense of materialism that had controlled my whole life. And it enabled me to become far more generous. And so I would say the two biggest outcomes is the relief from the pressure of materialism and also experiencing the joy of giving more uh, liberally and more frequently. Yeah, that is just wonderful. Um, you know, I want to say, Quickly, when I was in high school, I used to listen to Dr. Larry Riquette on the radio a lot. <laughs> Our family really um, enjoyed listening to him. And I was so excited to know that Crown Financial, which you're the CEO of, is, is uh, inherited that legacy, right? And um, so that's just really special to me as I was doing a little research about, about you. Um, 
But could you um, tell us a little bit for people who don't understand what is inflation? Uh, some people just we know higher prices, but is that what it really is? Is that what inflation is all about? Well, inflation means there's more money than there are goods to spend the money on. And so when there's a scarcity of things to purchase and more money chasing those products, then you see prices rise. Uh, that's, a, that's just standard classical economics. We're seeing that across the board. We've had a supply chain interruption. So now for the first time in my entire life, the price of used cars have been increasing, not decreasing. Uh, that's because there's a shortage of new cars. With the chip shortage, the new cars aren't uh, being able to be produced fast enough for the demand. Therefore, used cars are taking their place. So inflation is simply a phenomenon when there's more money than there are goods to purchase. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's partly due to the disruption in our supply chain, but also due to both fiscal and, and uh, monetary policy. Our government is ex printing excessive amounts of money. Uh, they're spending excessive amounts of money. And so when you have those two things combined, a supply chain disruption and poor, weak stewardship over physical and monetary policy, you can't expect anything other than inflation. And, and that inflation really makes it difficult for the average person to, to survive, right? With inflation, inflation really kind of especially look at the gas prices for people that are not increasing their wealth, not increasing their income. It's very tough for them because they have a certain budget and now they can't live to it because it's so much more expensive with all the things increasing in price. Well, no doubt about it, Neil. It's very painful. You know, we started out talking about pain at the pump when inflation began because you saw the gas prices start to steadily rise, particularly due to the war in the Ukraine. We're in a perfect storm right now, but we all have pain at the pump. Not only does it mean how much it costs to fill up my car, but that means the delivery of products and, and goods and groceries all get more expensive and buying a plane ticket gets more expensive. Everything is impacted by the price of oil, not just uh, what we pay to put it in our car. Very good point. Yeah, I think you kind of answered this question already, but you know, the why, why it happens i feel like you kind of is there anything about that that you'd like to address um i mean you kind of gave us a pretty good rundown on that um no well dr white i actually don't believe that inflation is necessary i believe it's generally a product of bad governance uh when our government does not live within its means uh that they do not uh, control their own uh, expenditures, they create massive amount of debts, and then they print money to cover over a problem. That's a formula for a disaster. I call it riding the back of a tiger. It's exciting while you're doing it, but it's a very hard exit. It's difficult to stop printing money and to start living within our means. It's mm -hmm. something our government hasn't done for more than 40 years, uh, mm -hmm. and it cannot continue. Otherwise, there's just going to be more and more pain. Mm. Yeah, definitely. More and more pain and uh, well, it's not going to the, the survival will not happen. What, what are your recommendations to change some of those things? What well, on a basic, yeah, on a basic level, Neil, just on a personal level, I think if you're seeing inflation rate of eight to 10 percent, most of us need to adjust our budget by eight to 10 percent, meaning we need to ratchet down our outgo so that we can adjust to the cost of gasoline or the cost of groceries. And that means we usually have to manage our variable expenses, maybe our, our eating out, our travel, our miscellaneous things that we've normally done. Uh, subscription services are plunging right now. People are getting off of Netflix and other subscription-based services because of inflation. They're looking for margin in their finances. So uh, on a personal level, you have to make the adjustments in order to uh, be, be able to ride the wave of this. Secondly, uh, I tell people all the time, pivot your investments into those areas where you're experiencing the pain. If you're paying more for gasoline, obviously if petroleum companies that are publicly traded, those are going to go up in value. Yeah. So move your investments into the things that appreciate during inflation. And that's one of the best ways to offset the cost of inflation 
is to be mindful of where your investments are so that you can benefit actually from it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Uh, <laughs> but we need people like you to help us think this through, I think. Um, um, I know that I, I think most people realize that we are experiencing inflation. Um, how, maybe others don't, but how do we recognize it other than just being gouged with high prices? Is that, is that really how we recognize inflation? Well, I think we see it in a number of ways. You know, one of the hidden forms of inflation is the decrease in the amount of product that you get when you buy it. I like to buy these little protein bars. I, I bought them for years. And I noticed actually just today before the interview that there is one third less product in that wrapper than normal. It is oh not full anymore. And so instead of raising their price, they've decreased the amount of product in there. Even in deodorant, you can't see inside of roll-on deodorant or something. They're shrinking the amount of, of product that they're selling to you. And I call that hidden inflation. Uh, and that's happening everywhere. If you just measure it by amount of groceries you can put in one grocery bag, it's definitely getting fewer and fewer products that you can take home with you uh, because we're seeing the devastation of inflation, which I believe uh, wipes out the benefit of all of those who've been good savers through the year. You know, you're losing the purchasing power of your money day after day after day. No, 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 no doubt, no doubt about it. I think that that's the the, the big thing, and it, there's nothing you could do except you. You said ride the wave through this process by looking at what again, what types of expenditures and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and so what else did you? Uh, what else? What are we going to learn from reading your book? Tell us about that. Well, a couple of things in my book that I think are very important for people to know is there's a lot of doomsayers out there who believe that the world's gonna run out of resources. In fact, they so ardently believe that lie that they recommend you stop having children. There's a professor at Johns Hopkins University who's saying it's immoral to have more children because it's just gonna cause other people to starve. But when you look at the data, that premise is absolutely wrong. In fact, it, Nobody should ever believe a doomsayer that we're going to run out of resources because of overpopulation. I'm actually in the camp with Elon Musk, who recently said that underpopulation is a bigger threat to society than overpopulation. And here's why, and what I wrote about in the book, Neil, is that most doomsayers see man as a consumer, a greedy consumer of the world's natural resources. And so the more of us that are on the earth, the more uh, products are consumed and therefore there's not enough to go around. The, the theology of scarcity. Well, first of all, God said he's the God of abundance and he created man not simply to be a consumer, but to also work and produce. And economic history shows that as population has increased, so has the supply of resources. Man is a producer and when we faithfully work, we outproduce what we can personally consume by a large margin. And therefore we're able to share, we're able to live with abundance and comfort. You know, the American population has soared since the 1800s. And we've gone from 5 million people to the, from the original colonies to now over 380 million people, but we are not going hungry. Generally, we are having an opposite problem of uh, oversupply and overeating and too many calories. And so uh, I write about the fact that God built into us the privilege of being a consumer. I also write about the creativity of mankind. He allowed man to be an innovator and to come up with new ideas and new products. People don't even realize that Tesla, the car that is named in his honor, but the original uh, scientist was inspired by God to invent the electric motor, to invent radio, to invent the MRI machine, the early insights into things that absolutely changed the world. And he gave credit to God Almighty for those world-changing economic innovations. Uh, you look at history and the economic outcomes tell us that the principles of God are true and reliable and demonstrate his goodness 
in our everyday lives and, and how we experience life. Uh, any other, some other questions you have for uh, Dr. Bentley, Dr. Cheryl? That's beautiful. I, I think the thing that um, keeps crossing my mind is how are, can we be like faithful stewards of what God has given us and yet have the balance of, you know, um, not consuming too much. I mean, I, maybe we don't consume too much, but I, I think um, maybe we do, <laughs> you know, how do we find that balance between the two? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. There's a lot of guilt for prosperity. And there's even a theology out there that wealthy people are evil, that they must be greedy, they must be selfish, they must, there must be something wrong with their motives to have accumulated wealth. Uh, the scripture doesn't teach that at all. It certainly condemns greed and selfishness and, uh, and coveting, but it does not condemn wealth. And so the Lord enables us to produce. We're rewarded by our hard work. And the scripture says our highest priority with money is to be a giver. And when right. we give, we, uh, we share God's blessing, particularly with those who are unable to work. And there are categories of people who are disconnected from the ability to be in the economy. Whether they're sick, they've been incarcerated, or they've been uh, orphaned, those people need charitable help. And when we supply that need, we demonstrate the kindness of God to them. And the Bible also teaches us that after we give, we're to be savers. And so saving is a way to minimize your fear of the future. It's a way to minimize your fear of giving. And I like to say the biblical message to faithful stewards is to give first and to save second. We honor the Lord with the first of all of our income. We make him first. And we give and share his goodness to, to the world. And then we save for the unknown future. And that demonstrates God's wisdom. And I think for me, I never feel bad for someone who's created wealth. I feel like they need to understand their responsibility. Too much has been given, too much is required. And they're required to be very faithful with what God has entrusted to them. Oh, wow. And I think that the powerful thing about it is that without having that order in your finances, your life is in turmoil. And lots of research has shown, you know, people that don't have lots of money have not managed their resources well or going through a lot more problems and difficulties. You know, they don't want to say that specifically some people, but the truth is money can really give you the resources to a good life. Well, there's no doubt about it uh, that money is a source of comfort. It, it provides the options and the margin to do many things. I like to say it this way, Neil, that money is either an accelerator to you fulfilling God's purpose for your life, or it's an inhibitor. And the way the scripture teaches it, it should never inhibit us from doing what God wants to do with us. Some people say that good stewardship is ordering your finances in such a way that you can spend whatever you want. I don't think that's the real definition. The, what the Bible teaches is that you order your finances in such a way that God can spend you however he wants to spend you. And that means money doesn't have a hold of your heart. It's not holding you down due to excessive debt and uh, problems and challenges with money. You literally experience the freedom that God wants us to have, that we are literally free to do whatever he wants to do with us. Uh, Dr. Shaw, another question for Dr. Bentley. Well, I guess I'm thinking of the here and now and, and the struggles we're having today with inflation. Um, what And you kind of gave us some great ideas of what we can do. Do you believe it can be stopped? Can we stop this inflation happening today? Well, you know, Dr. White, I can't stop it. Uh, I, wish, I, I wished I could. Uh, I, I wish I could too. <laughs> I think the government can stop it. Uh, and it appears that they're trying to do that right now in what's called a soft landing. By raising interest rates, they're attempting to slow down uh, the economy so that a correction can take place. So the market will correct. Uh, the oversupply of funds will correct. 
all of those things they're attempting to do. But it is, uh, it's like someone said, it's like attempting brain surgery in the back of a car on a real bumpy road. It is dangerous and risky right now. And so I think we all need to be prepared for a recession, uh, meaning a pullback in economic growth, a pullback in the market values, uh, because I, it looks like that's what it's going to take to put the brakes on inflation. I, I'm not saying that that's all bad news. Uh, inflation can, I mean, a, a recession could be a good time. I tell people all the time, when there's a recession, the stock market puts some of the best companies in the world on sale. You just need to be prepared to buy them while they're on sale. All right. Where can we purchase the book and learn more about you? Where's the best place we can go? Well, our website is crown.org. Very, very easy web address. We have a lot of free resources to help people get on a budget, to learn to manage money differently, to think about uh, their lives from internal perspective. If you want the book, it's available at amazon.com. And I will say, Neil, that uh, for those who do pick up the book, if you would be willing to write a review, that is very, very helpful to me so that other people will be encouraged to buy it as well. Okay, fantastic. And Dr. Cheryl, where can we connect with you? Best place. Yes, um, thank you. Underground Angel is the story of um, a 19th century abolitionist, Laura Havland, and it's on sale um, at Amazon as well or on my website, undergroundangel.net. Tremendous mission that both of you guys have, and it's great to have you both on, and I appreciate you both. Thank you, Neil. Nice to meet you, Dr. Blyne. You're listening and watching the Neil Haley Show, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rob Roselli Show. I'm excited to welcome Rob Roselli. Rob, what's going on? How are you? Hey, Neil. How you doing? I'm doing good. All right, so the news just continues to get worse, right? Yeah. I mean, the whole thing's imploding uh, around us. It's a shame what's happening to this once great nation, but... uh, I don't know where to begin. There's an interesting article, uh, a video posted by Mike Adams, National News, this past week, where he talked about uh, simultaneous attack by Russia and China against the United States, which, which of course aligns with my uh, mystery battle on USA link on the website, uh, boxofsunglasses.com. So I have that going on. Um, a lot of other stuff. Unfortunately, you know, inflation still is at a 40 or 50 year high. That's not abating anytime soon. And that's starting to drag down the stock market. Um, as people realize the economy's going to hit the brakes. So you have that going on. And then as well as um, piling out, there's all kinds of fertilizer shortages happening. So we're looking at a food shortage or a food shortage crisis in a not too distant future, you know, the magnitude of, you know, who knows how, what kind of magnitude that's going to be. Um, but um, that's something else to look out for. And then you have the drought situation out west, like me, uh, and many other water supply uh, lakes, power supply lakes out west are historically low levels, so you can start having a lot of problems out west in the western United States with droughts going on out there. Um, and then you got this January 6th sham hearing going on with the you know Democrats in Congress and they're withholding information and they're just, I mean, let's just face it, they're after Donald Trump. They want to come up with something so they can I guess throw them in jail. I don't know what they're trying to do. Uh, decrease his credibility to a point where he can't run for president or, or you know, make him some kind of felon where he can't run for president because that's the only way they can beat him. They feel that in, in I guess, cheating like the millions and millions of illegal immigrants they're letting into the country right now, you know, allowing them to vote. But the country's being destroyed before our eyes, and it's a shame. Um, that it's come to this. Now, of course, you have all kinds of uh, madness going on with the guns. Uh, you know, mass shootings, you know, and that's going to continue. And that's going to continue for a push for gun control, which 
you know, unfortunately, it looks like they're going to have some kind of pass, and that, that could result in a civil war if they really push that too far with the gun control. But there's a lot going on, and it's a lot. You know, as I mentioned last week, it's almost like an Alamo kind of situation where we're, the country's just surrounded <clears throat> with bad news and bad things happening. And, and I'm not sure there's a way out of it at this point out of all this stuff. I mean, you know, maybe we get to the midterms, maybe not. Uh, what that's going to be enough to save the nation, I, I don't know. So if the, if the midterms happen, do you think there's going to be election fraud again? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And mass, on a massive scale, uh, I think the biggest fraud is going to be illegal aliens getting to vote, um, which is already happening in, in many cities, you know, New York City and, and all the places. Like, and I believe Los Angeles. So you just write those places off because they're just going to vote for who's giving them, the, you know, the welfare and the paychecks. And of course, that's the Democrats running up the national debt, running up inflation with all this extra government spending. Um, which is just a shame. Sounds like it. And uh, you're, you're, you know, um, what are your thoughts completely on this? What, what's going to happen next? What's your prediction? I don't know. I don't know. You still got the, uh, you still got this war in Ukraine going on as well. Uh, you know, Russia's threatening. Uh, who knows how long Russia's patience is going gonna, is gonna to last with that. With the war in the Ukraine, you know, U.S. supplying and Western power supplying arms and money to the Ukraine, which, you know, apparently a lot of it's being um, going to fraud. Uh, I came across an article where they, you know, they said it's usually Ukraine are buying these multi-million dollar homes now, you know, all this money's flowing over there and it's not really going for its intended purposes and a lot of the arms are ending up on the black market. So, you know, who knows? It's another mess that the Biden administration and their, their left-wing ideologues, their Ivy League, you know, idealistic ideologues running the country, you know, whatever, whatever it is they're up to um, with the Ukraine, who knows? But it's just, um, that's a hard one to figure out what's going on over there. But I think what they're trying to at least partially is cover up these illegal bio labs that were doing legal, you know, bio-warfare research over in the Ukraine, and I, which is part of the reason why Russia invaded. Um, so Russia had to invade to deal with that. And I'm not defending Russia and saying they're great or perfect or anything, but I'm not sure the United States would have acted any, any ways different, given a similar scenario. You know, if we had illegal bio-labs operating in Canada and Mexico, you know, I'm sure, I don't think the United States would sit idly by and do nothing. Um, all that kind of research was going on. So, um, you know, who knows what's, what's going to go on with that. We're not getting any truth, any anything, any truthful news on that. You can't figure out who's winning and who's losing the war over there. Um, but um, anyway, so you have that situation. Well, there's a lot of different situations. And the only way to, to, to stop all this is the midterms. You don't, if, let's say the Republicans take over the midterms, will things change? Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe, maybe they get a majority, they can impeach Biden, uh, you know, for all his executive orders and, you know, his ostensibly maybe his illegal gun grab that he's going to try and, you know, in the future or, Get him on your twenty fifth amendment, your you know, senility argument. Um, but even then, I mean, who knows? The so called deep state, or what I call the un American genocidal complex, is is so vast and so entrenched in our society. I'm not sure, you know, a single election gets rid of it all. Uh, but hopefully, I'm wrong. All right. So, boxofsunglasses.com for more information, Rob. We appreciate it again, and. Uh, the dimmer outlook every week. We'll see what it changes next week. Well, yeah, just don't don't forget God's simple salvation plan. I mean, ultimately, God's in charge of this whole mess. 
people need to keep that in the back of their minds, you know, just reading the headlines. And, and I know that it gets, gets discouraging and, um, and this, that, this sort of thing. But anyway, just keep that in mind. Okay, that was the Robert Sully Show, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show here on the Neil Haley Show as well. I'm excited to welcome program Nobel Prize nominated doctor and also best-selling author, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? And you're excited about our guest, aren't you? Wow, I'm doing great now. How are you? I'm very excited about our guest today. All right, so introduce our guest. Well, no problem. Well, you know, uh, this individual, we know we know that is an actress of film, television, uh, humanitarian. Uh, we know her uh, probably most from the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine episode. And uh, wow, so I'm very excited to welcome to the show, uh, Chase Madison. Welcome to the show, Chase. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, fantastic. So we want to just jump over specifically right into Chris's first question. Oh, no problem. You know, and so we, we have a lot to talk about, but just quickly, you know, Chase, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from and how you got into acting. Thank you so much. Well, my mom was a theater director, so I grew up in this business. I've been acting since I was five years old, and it's wonderful to still be doing the work and fantastic projects like The Baby Pact. Absolutely. So talk about, so, you know, talk about specifically enough was acting something you want to do your whole life? Is it something just you really were passionate about wanting to do or you had other ideas at first? You know, it's all I ever did and it's all I ever wanted to do for various reasons. But, you know, when people tell me, you know, they're thinking of getting into the business, I always go back to that. If Unless it's something deep and just biting at your soul that you have to do this, then don't. But if it's something that you just can't restrain yourself from, then do it with all your heart. And that's what I've always done. And um, yeah, it's been a good, it is a good long run, still cooking. Um, I, I, I love working with teams like the, the team on the baby pack. That's part of the joy of this business. Uh, Matt Berman has led a, a really fun, engaged, talented group of actors. And um, that's a huge part of the joy of this. It's more than just being out there, seeing your face on camera. Um, it's really about the family feeling and the messages that we get to spread as actors. And that's what I find in this project. That's, that's what drew me to it. All right, fantastic. Next question. Wow, that, that, that's just so incredible. And you know, the whole Star Trek, uh, you know, series was incredible, but Deep Space Nine was trailblazing. You know, the different types of actors they had on, diversity involved. And you were part of that, Chase. Now, tell us about that. Uh, uh, you just being in the scene that time with the Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was an incredible experience, and it was also one that I strategized purposely as a career move. I had a friend who had been on Star Trek and I thought, wow, what an incredible legacy that must be to have that kind of body of work, of important work, of well-loved storytelling, and also that fan base. And uh, that's actually how I met Matt Berman and why I'm here today. Um, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Star Trek is something that will be part of our history and our, our lives, you know, our careers, careers for the rest of our lives. And so that's a wonderful feeling. So you were talking strategizing. What were, were you trying to transition when you strategized for that opportunity? Well, you know, you can actually try to point your career in one way or another. If you want to do daytime television, you meet those casting directors. If you want to do... Uh, if you want to work for the next 30 years, you strategize Star Trek. And um, that kind of thing is, is important to keep in mind that this fan base is so lovely and passionate. They're always asking, what can I see you in next? We're always getting opportunities for press and the career is just able to grow. And how many actors get that? Not that many. Um, it's wonderful to be part of this legacy. Absolutely. All right, Chris, next question. Oh, no problem. And just kind of backing up, you know, you studied the uh, University of Texas Austin. Uh, tell us uh, what you studied there contributed all, I mean, to your career. Hey, the last part, which, what that led to my career? Oh, no, uh, just what you studied there in college at UT Austin. Uh, yes. To your career. Well, I, I think I got that question. I majored in acting, and that was an incredible experience because 
let's take the baby pack, for instance, when you're on set, you need to know your stuff in a way that a lot of people who don't have those chops can't access. It's important to have, for instance, a theater background, which most of us on the baby pack do, um, so that we can work, work quickly, so that we can know, understand Matt Berman and his shorthand when he says, I, I need you to feel this more deeply, or um, right. I, I just need you to tighten this up. That's, those, that's like a muscle that you go back to, that you rely on, and you go, got it, I could do that right now. <laughs> and so, um, so working with actors such as Gail O'Grady, who's got so many chops from, you know, an incredible career on television. Uh, Connor Trenier has a wonderful television career. Haley Duff is... She lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.